This evening we're going to look at the second half of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. As you read through the Scriptures, one of the things, particularly in narratives, where you hear stories about what happened in the past, what's difficult about that is that there's often no commentary as to whether God commends their actions or condemns their action. For example, Rahab, when she lied. There's no divine commentary that says she did what was evil in the sight of the Lord in lying to the, the, um, the authorities there. Um, Moses doesn't come out and say, uh, here in this passage we're going to see Abram's sin, and I would take it that way, his unbelief and his compelling his wife to lie. Um, Moses doesn't come out and say, and Abram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and Sarai with him. And to be quite honest with you, that is actually kind of helpful. Now, if the entire Bible was written in narrative and never said whether anything was good or bad, then that could be a potential uh, difficulty in trying to interpret what was good and what was bad. Fortunately for us, the entire Bible is not written in narrative. And there is often times where God allows the author of Scripture to explain whether it's good or bad. But I say that it's it's good to have passages like this that don't give uh, a clear commentary on what God thinks because that's exactly how your life is, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if you had divine commentary after every event in your life? You blow up at your children or your parents. You tell them off. And a voice comes from heaven. Frank did what was evil in the sight of the Lord by being filled with anger against his family member. It's like, okay, I'm clear. I know I did wrong. I need to, to repent. Or someone makes fun of you because of the way that you look. And the voice comes from heaven and says, "God looks on the uh, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Don't worry about what they're saying about you. It would be nice, wouldn't it? But that's not the way life is. And I believe many times in Scripture we're left with no divine commentary on the rightness or wrongness of what happens in the passage like we have here in order for us to um, be able to live our own lives and be able to interpret what's going on in our own lives properly. We need to pull in other parts of Scripture. What does the rest of Scripture say about what is going on here? Israel, the readers, the initial readers of this, this Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, they knew how this all turned out. They understood what happened to Abram and that, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed and and that through Abraham many people were born. That many descendants had come through Abram at this point, Abraham later. But when they read this for the first time, perhaps they didn't know this story. And perhaps you haven't given much thought to this story either. When they read this for the first time, they think, wow, I thought Abram's life was a breeze that he had direct revelation from God, Abram, I'm going to do some great things through you. and I'm going to bless your descendants. And they see that Abram's life was actually not a breeze. It wasn't promise 
And shortly thereafter, blessing. It was promise, wait, not too sure, show faith, show lack of faith, show faith, show lack of faith, blessing. And isn't that the way that our lives are often too? We have God's promises. We fail to trust Him fully. And so we we take it upon ourselves to move on ahead of God where He doesn't want us to go by disobeying Him. And as a result, we avoid all the blessings that we could have in God. We avoid seeing God work in the way that He, He desires to work in us. But as we look back on Abram's life, we realize that there are struggles that he had in his, his own heart. And we should realize from this passage specifically that, that even the best of God's servants fail him. Even the best of God's servants fail him. And this is what you're going to find throughout the book of Genesis. We, we are really just getting started, but you're going to see people like Isaac, Esau, uh, Esau probably not a good example. Uh, Jacob, okay, Joseph, even the best of God's servants fail him. You see, the fulfillment of God's promise is not as cut and dry as we like to think of it. We like to see God's promise, God's fulfillment, but that's not the way life is. There were threats to Abram's life. He he wasn't sure if he was going to make it to the next day. That's what we're going to find here. And so it changes his focus, his perspective. He moves it off of God and onto the circumstances of life. And as a result, he shows his lack of faith. And in this, we should be warned, number one, that we could fall into the same trap. But two, we should be encouraged that people who we put on a pedestal as great Men of God, great women of God often fail. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Even the best of God's servants fail him. Abram's desire here, we're going to see, is for self-preservation. He wants to make sure that his life continues. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But for Abram, 
He did it apart from the acknowledgement that God was the one who actually would preserve him. Well, we would expect after chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. He just piles up promise after promise. Here you go, Abram. This is all you. What we would expect after that is that God would immediately follow through on the promise that, that Abram was immediately going to have a child, a son, and that this son would would produce a great number of, of children and, and descendants for him. Remember, at this time, according to verse 4 of chapter 12, Abram was 75 years old when the promise came. How old was he when the promise was fulfilled? At least the part where he would have a son. He was 100. day before the child was actually born. And... Hebrews tells us that he died without seeing fully the promise. Part of that is because the promise is still being fulfilled, that all the nations of the earth are being blessed through his his seed, through his people. So even one part of that promise was not fulfilled until 24, 25 years later. And so when those sorts of long periods of wait happen when it comes to God's promises, it often causes us to doubt God. Maybe God's not going to follow through on this promise. Do you think that thought ever crossed Abram's mind? Can you think of some examples in his life where he tried to take it upon himself to make sure that this promise was fulfilled? Here's one of them. We'll talk about it tonight. What's the other one? Hagar? Right? Ishmael? Abram Abram failed to fully trust God as we tend to think of Him. Have you ever been there yourself? You know there's a promise of God for you based on what the Scriptures tell you. But He hasn't come through yet. And you wait, and you work, and you wait... And nothing. And you think, I'm holding up my end of the deal. God, where are you? Where are you? Abram was there. He had the promise. But for 24 years, nothing was fulfilled. And then what, what that means is that when it feels like God is not there, when He's not following through on the promise, that is when our faith is really tested. When we're counting on a promise from God and He doesn't come through, the way that we act in that time, at that time, reveals what's in our heart. How we see God. How we view ourselves. For Abram, he felt insecure. He thought he had to help God in some way. This is what he does here. He tries to preserve his own life. Abram was in a very insecure place. He was away from home and potentially going to be killed by the Egyptians. And so he defies God here. We see the test of security in verses 10-13. through The test of security. Notice what God does here. There's not a whole lot of mention of God in this passage, but what we do see is that God 
sends Abram providentially down to Egypt. Look at verse 10 again. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, now wait a second. I didn't read God in that verse. Where do you see that this was providential? And I would tell you that it's in the very first phrase. Now there was a famine in the land. Who sent that famine? Hey, ultimately, it had to be God. Abram, remember, had settled in Canaan. But his family certainly didn't own the land at that time. His descendants would later receive the land. It really wasn't going to be till Joshua uh, came around till the people of Israel would possess that land and cause the Canaanites to dispossess the land. So he didn't technically own it, but he did live there. He was a what's called a wanderer or a sojourner. That was kind of where he resided. And yet a famine came to the land. Now, was it wrong for Abram to go to Egypt? Uh, the Scriptures aren't clear on that. Uh, should he have trusted God more? Maybe God would have provided for him right there in Canaan. Just stay there. Well, it's hard to say because with Jacob, when he fled to Egypt, remember, Joseph became second in command in all of Egypt. He sends back for his father. And Jacob was really distraught. I can't leave this land. And yet God told him, you know what, Jacob, it's okay. And it actually became one of the greatest events in Old Testament history for God to bring them back out of Egypt, back to the land of Canaan, wasn't it? And so for Jacob, it was okay. So it very well could have been okay for Abram to do it as well. We don't have to read too much into Abram's fleeing to Egypt. If Abram were abandoning God's plan altogether, then he would go back where? Probably to his hometown, right? Ur of the Chaldeans. I'm just going to go back there where it's really safe, where I'm really secure. But Egypt was a close place of solace. Remember that they had the Nile River, and the closer you are to the river, the more sustenance there is, the more life there is. There's more vegetation uh, near the river. So you go down to a place like that. We see Abram's... uh, sacrifices his integrity and his purity at the altar of his own security. He sacrifices his integrity at the altar of his security. In other words, in order for me to get what I want, my security, my life, I'm going to sacrifice whatever it takes. And if that means my integrity, my purity, I'm going to do it. Purity of his wife, really. Verses 11-13. through 13. We see Abram's plan in verse 11. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. Notice what he says here to his wife. Men, you would do well to speak of your wife in this way. I know that you are a beautiful woman. And, um, but, but don't go any farther than what he, he... Don't go as far as he went here in verses 12 and following. The problem for Abram was her beauty. Her beauty was going to be noticed. It couldn't go unnoticed. Verse 12, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. They will let you live. See, what is he concerned about? He's not concerned about the safety of his wife, the purity of his wife. He's concerned about his own protection. If they see you, they know that I'm married to you. The only way that they can add you to to their harem 
kill off the husband. I'm a dead man when they see your beauty. This is not flattery here. Okay? This is, he is genuinely serious about the beauty of his wife and he recognizes that this could cause him great danger, that he could die. And that's exactly how they would have to do this. If they saw her beauty and wanted to add her to Pharaoh's harem, which is exactly what happens, Abram would have to be killed. But here's the alternative, Abram thought. Let's say that you're my sister. That way, Pharaoh or his men have to come to me. You see, in the absence of a father, the uh, whoever wanted to take this woman in marriage would go to the oldest brother. So if Abram said, I'm your brother, she's my sister, no father around, who are they going to go to? And that's exactly what happened. Remember Laban. Laban was the sister of Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24. And yet, he is the one who gives Rebekah to Isaac. Do you remember? Sarai was 65 years old at this time. And in that time, she was at the prime of her life. She dies in around 120. I can't remember exactly. And so she's at the prime of her life. So what Abram is talking about is not he's not twitter pated here like a little bit a little bit blinded to her beauty she's not really that pretty. And the reason I know that is because of verse 14. Look at verse 14. It came about when Abram came to Egypt the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And she was a cut above as far as her beauty what they would even have for themselves. In other words, she was probably the most beautiful girl around. That's why the Pharaoh deserved her. They wanted to pass that information on to, to him. So Abram was right. She was beautiful and they were going to notice. They wanted to save his own skin. And so we see his sin in verse 12. It's, it's at least twofold. One, I mentioned it earlier, he failed to trust God. That God would ultimately follow through on his promise. And two, his sin is that he compelled Sarah to lie. Remember, God had promised them that through His seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay, That's actually going to be spelled out a little bit more in chapter 15. But, but, but the Gentiles were going to be blessed through Him. But how could God follow through on His promise if Abram were dead? This is what Abram should have been thinking at the time. God can't follow through on His promise because I have no seed right now. Remember what it says about about uh, Sarai in chapter 11, verse 30. Sarai was barren and she had no children. So how could God follow through on His promise if He didn't have any children? And how could God follow through on His promise if He had no children and He died? point is, God was actually going to keep him alive until at least he had a child. That's not the way Abram saw it. He figured, God, you can't spare me on your own. I'm going to help you out a little bit here. This situation is a little bit too dangerous. 
So many times in life, we move on ahead of God in order to provide security for ourselves or to accomplish something that we think we need when God is standing off thinking, I'm right here. I'm true to my promise. I've never left. You don't have to go beyond these barriers in order to accomplish my best for you. Just follow me. Stay within the boundaries of what I've set up for you. Hey, I've set up these boundaries. This is how we're going to get here. You maintain the commandments of my word. Follow me. And Abram jumps outside the boundaries and said, actually, no. Let me handle this myself. I don't see us getting there, going down that road. I'm going this way. And God's standing there saying, did I not promise you? Have I ever broken a promise? not the way Abram sees it. And so verse 13, he compels Sarai to lie. Please say, he says to her, that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account and that I may live on account of you. Please say that you are my sister, he says. Now, the first readers, Israel, may not have known this story. But certainly what they did not know was that Abram and Sarai were actually Half-siblings. Chapter 20, verse 12 says that they have the same father. So, technically, Abram is telling the truth. But it's a half-truth. You see? Say you are my sister. Don't say that you're my wife. Say you're my sister so that it will go well with me. That they won't kill me on account of you. By the way, this was not the last time Abram used this deceitful plan. We'll see this again in chapter 20, verse 12, when he does the same thing with Abimelech, the king. Say that you're my sister. And apparently, this is the plan that they had all along. Whenever they would go into a foreign city, you're beautiful, they're going to kill me because I married you, say that you're my sister. It's the plan he continued on. Apparently, throughout at least these 24 years. Because in chapter 20, verse 13, it says, he says this, every place we come, say of me, he is my brother. Okay, So that's just not right here with the Pharaoh of Egypt and not with just this king later on. Every place you go, he says, say of me, he is my brother. Abram's problem was that the highest goal for him was not to do right, but to protect his own skin. George Burns, a um, in many ways a crass comedian, once said that the key to success for me is first learning honesty, and then once I learn to fake that, I can I can achieve anything. Learn honesty, fake it, and then I can get whatever I want. And sadly, that's much the way that much of our culture operates. They're not concerned about doing right. They're concerned about being seen to be doing right. That's why there's public relations. That's why there's all this advertising and there's this squelching of problems. 
do that, but you get this, this uh, some sort of thing that puts, sheds you in a better light than really what you are. Try to hide all the imperfections. Let's talk about all the good things. And that's because the most important thing for many people in our culture is not doing right, but it is to be seen to be doing right. I just want people to think I am doing right. And this is Abram's problem, I believe, here. He desired security. He didn't care about, in this place, didn't care about honoring God. What does he say there in verse 13? At the end of the verse, because of you, and that I may live on account of you, so that it may well go well with me, he says. That's what I'm hoping for. That's my goal in this. God being honored, set that aside for a second here. I want it to go well with me. And it apparently works. You see that in verses 14 through 16? There's apparent success here. Pharaoh desires and takes Sarai just as Abram thought. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram was right. They would think that she was beautiful. They call her very beautiful. And so Pharaoh's officials tell Pharaoh about her and how beautiful she was, and she's taken into Pharaoh's house. And I hate to tell you this, but this was not to give her a tour around the place. This was not to share a nice meal with her. And the reason I know that is from verse 19. Why do you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. This is serious stuff here. Abram leads his wife to be a part of a wicked man's harem. To be taken on as part of his another one of his wives. And what kind of relationship do you think that culminates in? In effect, he put his wife out there as a prostitute in order to protect his own skin. Do you understand the weight of what's going on here? And by the way, Sarai was not innocent here. She was also guilty. Did she have to lie? Her husband told her to. But she didn't have to lie. But perhaps in her mind, this was an opportunity to provide a son for Abram. Remember, she was barren. Perhaps it was Abram that was the cause of that. So now I take, have a relationship with someone else and I can provide a son for Abram. Whatever the fact, or whatever the case is, Abram and Sarai defied God. And what's amazing is that they seem to be blessed. Verse 16. Therefore, he, the Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake. Isn't that what Pharaoh or Abram wanted? That it may go well on account of me or on account of you. That it may go well with me on account of you. He treated him well. What did he do for him? End of verse 16. And he gave him sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
Instead of negotiating with Abram for his sister, Pharaoh just took her. And he was happy to have her. So, so much so that he showered Abram with gifts. I think your, your sister is so special. I'm going to give you all these things. And this compelled Abram to agree to allow her to be a part of his harem. And this turned Abram into a wealthy man. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. Chapter 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Now, it's very likely that he picked up a lot of these possessions before this event. But when he sent, the Pharaoh sent Abram away at the end of the story, he doesn't take all of his things back. Those have already been given to, to Abram. This turns Abram into a wealthy man. But now the question in Abram's mind has to be, how am I ever going to get her back? How am I going to get her back? Would he have to turn himself in because, and just say, listen, I lied to you? Serious offense against the Pharaoh of Egypt. Well, God is at work again, amazingly. Verses 17 through 20. God exposes the sin. Verse 17, we show, we see that God shows mercy by exposing the sin. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God shows mercy by exposing Abram's sin. The Lord intervenes in order to bring Abram's sin to the surface. And so this is really not a case of caught. You have been caught, Abram, in your lie. It's actually a case of God saying, I rescue you. In order for me to rescue you, I'm going to expose your sin. Not exactly the way we would plan it, but this is how God often works. And for this, in this case, He sends plagues on the Egyptians. Probably some kind of boils that came on Pharaoh's household, but not on Sarah, Sarai. Probably resulted in some questioning to her. Well, what's going on here? Why are we getting all of these physical problems and you're not? And that probably resulted in her telling the truth at that point, realizing what was going on. So when God exposes our sin, we shouldn't see this as punishment, but as mercy. That's what it is here. If He allowed us to our sin to remain hidden, then that says something about where we are headed. And thank God He did not allow it to be hidden in the case of Abram. He didn't just leave him to his own sin. That's what happens in Romans chapter 1. You know what? You're going to oppose me time after time after time after time. I'm going to give you over the lust of your minds. You can have what you want, but you're not going to find satisfaction in it. So when God exposes sin, it's one of the greatest acts of mercy that He can show you. Thank God for doing that in your life. Pharaoh shows mercy. We see God's hand in this, verses 18-20, through 20, by sparing Abram's life. Pharaoh had every right 
to kill Abram for his lie. Verses 18 and 19. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I could... So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Who's doing the rebuking here? An ungodly, wicked ruler is rebuking a godly man. Isn't that ironic? It reminds me of Jonah. When the, when the men on the boat, godless people, Say, Jonah, get up. Call on your God. It's ironic. I mean, the man of God should already be doing that. And yet sometimes God uses wicked people to rebuke us. This is what happens with Abram. Why did you not tell me the truth? Even unbelievers know better than to do that, Abram. Come on. And so Pharaoh sends them away, verse 19. Abram thought that he could get away with this, that, that it, he would never be found out, but his plan didn't work out as he had planned. And who is it that steps in to protect him? It's God. You see, Abram thought security was found in his own ingenuity, his own wisdom, his own, his own uh, thinking. If he could just accomplish what he thought was best for him. But what we find by the end of the story is that security is found only in God. And only God can provide ultimate security for us. And so Abram leaves with Sarai, all his belongings. Verse 20, Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. We're going to find that they head back, chapter 13, back to the Negev, the south southern land, of Israel, Judah, that is, takes all his belongings and leaves. Can you see God's hand in this story? We don't have a whole lot of mention of God. But do you see how God is the one who sends them down because of the famine? That God is the one who brings Abram's sin to the surface? That God is the one who spares Abram and Sarai? They could have been both killed for this. Well, how would Abram respond to this? Would he learn from this? Well, he does do this at least one more time. And as I mentioned, probably whenever they went to a foreign city, according to what's said in chapter 20, verse 13. And Isaac also follows suit. He apparently saw his dad do this and thought, I may as well do the same thing. Chapter 26, verses 6 through 11, he does the same thing. But Abram's faith would not stay weak. You remember, one of the things that we remember Abram most for at that time, it's Abraham when he sacrifices, or willing to sacrifice his own son. The, the one seed through whom God said the whole world would be blessed, he's willing to put him up on the altar. And even to the point where he has the knife, the axe ready to kill him. Because God told him to. Perhaps over time, as a result of reflection, repentance, and continual growing trust that Abram, Abram believed God. In fact, we're going to see later, chapter 15, verse 6, that he believed God and God credited, credited it to him as righteousness. 
Now, in our minds, Abram is usually a hero. Perhaps you've never really given much thought to this part of Abram's life. What you need to understand about the Scriptures and about our own lives is not, is not that God uses heroes to accomplish purposes, but that God is always the hero in every story in the Scriptures and in your life. God is always the hero. And He graciously accomplishes His purpose in spite of the damaged goods that He has to use. In spite of the broken, the, the cracked vessels that we are. So when God does accomplish His purpose through us as weak Christians, we can't take the praise for it. It all gets deflected to God. What an amazing God we serve to, to, to receive glory through such terrible circumstances. People who fail to trust Him as they should. But don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that, that how you live doesn't matter. Okay, That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Okay, God can glorify Himself through even the worst of circumstances. Is that true? Absolutely. So it doesn't matter how I live. Is that true? Absolutely not. How you live matters. We're going to see that God can great, do great things through those who follow and trust Him, who obey Him, simply obey Him. And so we shouldn't walk around here saying, okay, I, I got the point of it. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Doesn't matter how I live. That's not the point of this passage. God uses trials to test our faith, and trials will produce perseverance and spiritual maturity. God was actually working for the good of Abram. Do you see that? That God was was leading him along to show him that there are some weaknesses here, Abram. He brought this trial into Abram's life in order to bring to the surface sin that Abram would have otherwise not have been able to see. So in that sense, God is actually working for Abram's good. And to show him that he didn't quite believe in God as much as he thought he did. He didn't quite believe in God as much as he ought to have believed in God. And so when trials come, we shouldn't abandon God. We shouldn't try to make it through on our own. We need to turn to God, trust in His promises. It is amazing the glory that God receives through us even when we disobey like Abram did. God still receives the glory. But imagine how much glory God could receive if we obeyed? How much glory could God receive if we trusted Him fully and obeyed Him completely? And that's why the song says, Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Don't tell me how much you believe in God, how 
strong your faith is. Let's see it in your obedience. The other point I want to draw out of application from this, not only that how you live matters, but also that this idea that we should never criticize what God is blessing is nonsense. Remember how I started? I said sometimes it's hard to tell where God stands on our current situation. He doesn't always give us divine commentary, particularly audible. The way to determine God's view of something is not to look for physical blessing. I'm sure you know lots of people who are blessed financially and yet do not know God. I'm sure you are like me. You know lots of people who are blessed with knowledge but are far from God. I'm sure you know of churches who are raking in the money with their ministry and yet God's glory had long departed. Just because there is financial or physical blessing does not mean that God is honored with that person or that organization. And the argument that's made even in well-meaning churches is that we should never criticize what God is blessing. So if our church, okay, let, let, let me talk like I'm a mega church, okay? If our church is filled to the seams, if our parking lots are expanding and our budgets are exploding, then don't criticize it because God is blessing it. What happens here in Abram's life? What is the result of him going out beyond where God wanted him to go? What is the result? It's physical, financial blessing. Was God honored with Abram at this time? Was God happy with the direction that Abram was going? Absolutely not. So that's nonsense to say don't criticize what God is blessing. And when they say that, they're talking about physical or financial. Isn't it interesting that the outcome of Abram and Sarai's sin is very much the opposite of Adam and Eve's sin. The outcome. They both sin. Adam and Eve, they defied God. Abram and Sarai defied God. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. They they were cut off from God's fellowship. They were given less. They were actually uh, given curses upon the earth. What happens to Abram and Sarai? They're actually exalted. Abram receives all this wealth. Sarai is treated as a goddess. So we can't read into our circumstances too much. You've got to be careful about that. Just because your sin produced good results doesn't mean that it was right before God. You could cheat at work by fudging some numbers and consequently get a promotion from your boss. But that doesn't mean that you're right before God. You could evade taxes and end up with $1,000 more in your pocket. But that doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. You could perform acts of service in order to be seen by others, even in this church, and receive lots of public praise from people. 
But if your desire is to do it in order to be seen, then you have your reward, Jesus says. You could tell people, hey, this is coming a little bit more, this is coming a little bit closer to where we live. You could tell people that you're praying for them when you really are not. So that they could view you in a better light spiritually than you really are. But God is not impressed. Just because you're being blessed financially, physically, whatever way, does not mean that you're right before God. It's more important to do right than for others to see you as if you are doing right. God's honor is at stake here. We must do whatever it takes to make sure that God's glory is represented well by us as individuals and us as a church. And the only way that we can know that we're doing that is we have to make sure that we know what God's boundaries are for for us. What are His commands? Where are we supposed to be? Are we stepping outside of those commands? Or are we following Him? John says it this way in his epistle. You say you love God, but you don't do my commandments. You're a liar. If you don't follow me, you don't love me. Jesus said that. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Don't talk about faith and love and your great spiritual life if you're not obeying me. Stay inside the boundaries that I have set for you clearly in the Scriptures. What are your responsibilities before me? Before your church? Before your family? Before your, your, your work? What are your responsibilities? Are you following through on those? doesn't matter how you're seen ultimately among people. We can easily be confused. We can easily be deceived. How are you standing before God? For Abram, at this time in his life, he wasn't concerned about God's honor. But praise be to God that God was still working in his life, exposing his sin, protecting him and Sarai, and leading on to greater steps of faith. That's my prayer for you and for my own heart. Let's pray. Father, we often wallow in the dregs of our old life, our sin that we so loved before You saved us. Somehow we we have convinced ourselves that there's more happiness in finding our own way than to follow Yours. And admittedly, the way of, of the righteous is hard. It is not easy. But ultimately, we can rest knowing that Jesus Christ has paved the way for us by overcoming Himself, and therefore, if we are in Him, we will overcome. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, for desiring our own way above Yours. There is a way that seems right to 
us as humans, but the end is death. We want to follow You. We don't want to be like Abram and Sarai here. We want to be like Abraham and Sarah later who did trust You, who followed You, who gave themselves wholly to You. Help us. We pray that You would reveal to us where we have sinned against You, where in our hearts we have failed You, where we are not trusting You, where we need to strengthen our faith and where we need to shore up the fences that have been torn down of Your commands, where we've moved on ahead of You where You don't want us to go. We need Your wisdom. We need Your grace. We need Your Spirit to work in us. Help us not to go away from this place having looked into a mirror and then done nothing about it. But may we seriously consider our own hearts, our own sin, and the sin that may be, um, may be in our church, other people around us. One of our responsibilities as church members is to look at the lives of others and to make sure that it's in, in uh, conjunction with what the Scriptures tell us. Help us to make Your Word our delight in all things. We can do that because Jesus has been our sacrifice. He has given His life for us. Without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission of sins. But through Him, we can have life. And we know that when we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us, to, to put us on new standing, to, to remove and eliminate that sin. Not that we're going to be perfect in this lifetime. We understand that. But certainly, we are going to be more mature, more perfect than we were when we first believed. Help us to recognize what is at stake here. Our own souls, and most importantly, Your glory. Help us to make that at the center of what we do, honoring Your name in all things by obeying You. Help us to do it in a joyful way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.